We had a young woman from Mexico named Julie Diaz live with us for three out of five years over that period. And she was here studying her MBA, and then she went back home for a while and came here again and got work. Then she got married, and her husband is back here now with her. And she attended a few of our trips to PEI. And one time she came to one of our family gatherings. And those of you who know me know I tell a lot of stories. Well, I have a lot of competition when I get into family gatherings. My brother and then I have a first cousin that I can't compete with them. So it's just one story after another. And afterwards, Julie said, Pastor Greg, the energy that you have. And that's what we get from telling stories. Now, I'm asking you to tell the story of your life. And it might not be dramatic, but there should be some stories of faith that you have to tell. And we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and realizing that this isn't just a theological chapter, but this is one of, this is actually the greatest chapter of faith in the Bible because it's full of examples, one after the other, of people who were living out their faith. And as we read these stories, we begin to learn what faith really is. And along the way, we've discovered some, faith, some things that faith actually isn't. It's not just theoretical. It's moving from the theoretical to the tangible. You know what faith is when it's tested. And faith is also not, it's actually more than just a feeling. Now, and a lot of people, especially those outside the church, they think of faith as a feeling where you've actually allowed your heart to override your mind and as if you believe something to be true, even though you know it really isn't true, you're trying to convince yourself of that. But we've seen just the opposite as we've looked through Hebrews chapter 11 because we've seen these people doing things that they didn't feel like doing. And if you are going to act in faith and follow God, then you are going to be called to do some things that you don't feel like doing. We noted some of the stories. Abraham, he didn't feel like leaving his home and going to this unknown country, but he did. Noah didn't feel like building an ark when God came up to him and said, uh, I want you to build an ark. Noah wasn't all primed and he didn't say, oh, well, I've been wondering what to do with the next 75 years of my life and I would just love to build an ark during that time. That's not the way it was. So many times faith will cause us to do something contrary to what we're feeling. So it has to be more than a feeling. And faith is more than just a cerebral understanding. It's not just an intellectual understanding of that side of things, but it's not just the ability to explain the triune nature of God. And that's good for us to be able to do that, but on its own, that's not enough. That doesn't make us a person of faith. So when I ask you if you have faith, I'm asking you to tell me a story because faith always has a story attached to it. So I want you to tell me the story of how your child battled through cancer. I want you to tell me the story of how you've struggled your whole life with this thing that the doctors can't diagnose. 
I want you to tell me the story of how your marriage was able to actually overcome a, a, an affair. I want you to tell me the story of how your family took some vacation time and went on a mission trip somewhere. I want you to tell me the story about how you had an extra car, but you then gave it to a family who needed it really badly. And then tell me the story about the awkward conversation that you had with your neighbor when you brought up the topic of God. And then I'd love to hear you tell me about the look on your relatives' faces when you asked them if you could pray at the family dinner. And then tell me about the tense moment you experienced when you told your family that you were getting baptized. Or maybe tell me about the single mom that your family is helping out. Or tell me about the world vision or, or the compassion child that your family is sponsoring. In the Bible, the word faith literally means response. And it may show up in the dictionary as belief or trust. But biblically, there is an action to the word. So there is a story attached to it. Well, maybe as we've talked about these stories of faith over the past few weeks, you've been thinking, well, I'd like to tell some stories, but I'm not sure why those stories don't seem to be coming my way. Now, some people have great stories, and they didn't choose them, but it's just something that just happened in their lives, and they're called on to persevere and endure and not give up. Yet, there is a sense in which we can choose to live great stories of faith. But it actually means that we are going to have to put ourselves out there. We're going to have to experience a little bit of danger. We're going to have to experience some risks. Maybe you don't have any stories to tell, and it's because you're just playing it safe all the time, and you're not stretching. You're not getting beyond that comfortable position that God has put us in. And most of us, we try to organize our lives in such a way that we don't put ourselves in a position that's uncertain. We've got our plans all made. They're already laid out carefully. And we don't purposefully step into any risk or danger. But unless you do that, you're not going to have any of these great stories of faith to be able to talk about it requires getting into an uncomfortable position where we are dependent upon God. A number of years ago, we made a step like that by gutting the, this building, the whole internal part of this building, because we needed to make more space. And the small number of people we had in the church at that time couldn't really see how this was going to happen unless God was involved in it. And he was, and we were able to pay that building debt off in four years. And since that time, I've lost track of the number of you that are new to us. And in, even in the coming and the going, we're probably three to four times bigger than we were at that time. And this baptism, or baptistry that we'll be using a little later today, that's been used 115 times since we made that move. But there are other things. Every time we make a new hire, there's an element of risk or faith involved. We hired a part-time worship director and wondered, where's the money going to come from? But then the money comes, and then you see the rich mix of people that we have that are playing instruments or singing here on Sunday mornings. 
And then we hired a full-time director of children's ministry and youth. And once again, this is a full-time position. Where's that money going to come from? But it has. And now we have over 100 kids that are up to grade 6. And then we have another 50 that are from grade 7 to 12. And all because we chose to take that step of faith. And that faith is going to be called upon again because we need to do something again to expand our building. Our children's ministry area is the biggest need. We had a vacation Bible school program here and we had to cap it at 100 kids because we had no more space. So you're going to be talking about how we're going to once again move into an element of uncertainty. But for a lot of us, that's hard to do. But we read through Hebrews 11 and we find one example after another of these heroes of the faith. People who were willing to be at risk and at danger and in uncertainty because those things all go together. So in Hebrews 11.6, the writer says, Without faith, no one can please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. So without taking some risks, without putting ourselves into that position, then it's going to be hard to have these stories. We're not going to please God. So Hebrews 11 is just stories of this in action. And today we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 12 because the writer is going to show us how this actually intersects with our story. We don't study Old Testament history just for the sake of studying history. We study it so that we can look at what the great heroes of the faith did and then we can actually be inspired in our journey of faith because of the race that they're running. So Hebrews 12, the first three verses. We are surrounded by a great cloud of people whose lives tell us what faith means. So the Hebrew writer uses this imagery of a race to capture this picture, this faith journey. And faith isn't this one-time thing where we come to faith in God and then that's it. But it is a lifetime. We're on this field. We're running a race. And all these guys in Hebrews chapter 11 are this huge stadium full of witnesses. So then continuing on, so let us run the race that is before us and never give up. We should remove from our lives anything that would get in the way and the sin that so easily holds us back. And let us look only to Jesus, the one who began our faith and who makes it perfect. He suffered death on the cross, but he accepted the shame as if it were nothing because of the joy that God put before him. And now he is sitting at the right hand a right side of God's throne. So think about Jesus' example. He held on while wicked people were doing evil things to him. So do not get tired and stop trying. So as you run this race and your lungs are starting to burn and your side is aching and your muscles are cramping, consider what Jesus went through and use that as an inspiration to not grow weary. I love to hear stories of faithfulness, but oftentimes I hear stories of weariness and the stories of losing faith. And you know what it's like when you're enjoying a family meal and it's on some special holiday and 
everyone kind of sits around this big table and there are certain seats that are official or unofficial seats for people. And it's kind of like that at church. Maybe some of you sit in the same seat when you come here on Sunday mornings. In the top 10 reasons why visitors don't return to a church, number nine is a member tells them that they're sitting in their pew or their seat. So I guess that still happens in some churches today. But maybe you're at that family meal and there's an empty seat there. And that's because someone really important in your family isn't there. You're thankful that everybody else is there, but there's a family member that isn't here. That seat is empty. So there are some people who should be sitting in some of the empty seats that we have here this morning. Uh, there was this young man who got his life straightened out, and then he started hanging around with his old friends again and got caught up in drugs, and he's back into that addiction. There was a young woman who was doing really well, and then she started dating this guy who was antagonistic toward her faith, and it just pulled her down. And then there were people that became Christians and then ended up working every weekend, every Sunday, and just got out of the practice of attending worship. And then there's a woman that the church has done so much for, and she just kind of turns her back on the church. And then there was a student that went to college and just kind of lost his faith. So there are empty chairs and runners who stepped off the track. So if I see you here in the worship center or maybe out in the cafe or even in the parking lot and I say, it's so good to see you, I mean that. I'm not just saying it because I'm the pastor and I'm paid big bucks to say that. I, I, I really mean it. It's so good that you're here. And, and here is what I know. But a year from now, there are some seats that are filled now that will be empty. It's too much, and some will step off that track. And because of COVID-19, we have what I call COVID malaise, and people are now in the habit, maybe I'm talking to you right now, of staying at home in your pajamas and not coming out to worship with all the rest of us. But you need to be here. You need that fellowship, just like all these people here are experiencing so Hebrews 12 is written to those who are running this race called faith. And we've seen these great examples, and now it's our turn to run this race. And this passage gives three different directives for us to find strength in order to finish strong. So we're picking up in verse 1. We should remove from our lives anything that would get in the way and the sin that so easily holds us back. So the Hebrew writer is saying, look, if you want to get to the finish line and feel the tape across your chest, and those of you in the younger generation won't know what I'm talking about, but when I was a teen and I ran races, there was no laser finish or whatever, but there was a tape at the finish line, and you would try to get your chest through that tape before the guys beside you in order to win that race. So if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to finish that race strong, then here's that first directive. You've got to get rid of everything that hinders you or slows you down. So the question for you and for me is, what is it that hinders us? What is it that slows us down? 
I've brought these weights up here this morning to represent some of the weight that we're carrying in our lives. And I did this years ago when I was younger, and we'll see how I do today. I survived the first service. But this first weight represents the stress and anxiety of life. And Jesus specifically speaks about this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, when he said, And what is the seed that fell among the thorny weeds? That seed is like the person who hears the teaching, but lets worries about this life and the temptation of wealth stop that teaching from growing. So the teaching does not produce fruit in that person's life. So the imagery he's using here is the pressures of life just kind of choke out God or the seeds of faith. So for some of you, this is just a 10-pound weight. For others of you, this represents the pressures of life weight. And they're a lot heavier than 10 pounds. And you've been carrying this around for a long time. Maybe it's a financial weight you've been carrying. Maybe it's a relational weight. It might also be a physical illness weight. And you feel like you just can't go another step. And yes, maybe you are starting to doubt a little bit. But in 1 Peter, the Bible tells us just to get rid of all those hindrances and put them on God because he cares for us. So daily you need to identify and say, God Here's the weight, the pressure, the stress, the anxiety of living, and I want you to carry this weight. I just want to hand it over to you because I can't carry it any longer. This second weight represents sin struggles. And that is a big issue in our lives because we may be struggling with unrepented sin. And Jesus talks about the fact that there are three sins that have a tendency to leave very little room for faith. One of them is the sin of pride, the second one is sexual sin, and the third one is materialism, or the pursuit of things. And he tells us that we need to daily identify the ones that are there, and we need to then put them off. And I think it would be safe for me to say that all of us at one time or another could see how one of these three things have begun to choke our faith. So we can look back at the seasons in our life when we were struggling in our faith and at the same time living with unrepentant sin in our life. And when you're sinning, then you are going to have a struggle with your faith and not be able to grow spiritually because there's this thing between you and God. So what do we do? For those of us that want to run this race, it's going to take daily repentance. We're going to have to say, God, I'm sorry, I repent of this sin. And when we do that, we can get rid of that weight so that we can run. This next weight is rule keeping. And this is interesting because it basically says religion is an enemy of faith. And when most people talk about religion and faith, they kind of try to use the words interchangeably, but that's not what the scripture says. And my guess is that when the Hebrew writer is talking about dropping every extra weight, 
He's talking about religious rule keeping, where people say, you're going to please God and you're going to be rewarded by following all these laws, by doing all these good things. But faith says, I can't earn God's reward, but I put my faith in Jesus Christ to do for me what I can't do myself. There's one more. (laughs) This weight represents doubts in our life. And many of us carry these around and we have these doubts and we don't necessarily express them to other people. We don't ask God for help with them, but we just kind of carry them around. And it's frustrating to me because people will then walk off the track and this is what they say, I just had too many doubts. And I say, but you didn't talk to anybody. You didn't talk to me. You didn't talk to some other Christian about it. You, you just quit. Now, it's a beautiful moment when someone in their 50s, 60s, 70s commits their life to Christ. The first baptism I had was actually an 83-year-old man. And then on Friday night, there was a baptism here of a 58-year-old woman who actually never had the opportunity to hear the gospel until now because she grew up in a Muslim country. But I celebrate with them, and part of me is frustrated because they didn't make the decision in their 30s, 20s, or teens. But that isn't meant to be offensive to that person. I just say, you know, I, I wish there was so much more time that they had to make disciples through all those years. So what if you're a teenager or a 20-something or a 30-something? I challenge you to pursue faith in Jesus Christ now. Like, don't wait until you're 50 or 60. Today is the day to pursue Jesus Christ and the day to ask those questions and to look to him. So don't wait So we take off these weights. My daughters will be very proud of me being able to do that. So we take off those weights, and then what do we do? We have another directive here in verse 1. So let us run the race that is before us and never give up. Now that word race isn't just the generic word for race. The word race that's used here from the Greek means agony. And the Hebrew writer isn't saying that this is any old race that you would be involved in, or it's not jogging in a beautiful park on a beautiful day. It's not jogging along the beach. But this is a challenging and demanding race. And he acknowledges the reality of what people are experiencing. And he says, yeah, it's a herd race. And it's going to feel at times like you're running uphill against the wind and and running in mud. Our family went to PEI and we stayed at a camp this summer. And my wife Pat and daughter Brittany and I decided to bike to the top of Bonshaw Hill. 500 feet elevation. That's not very big in comparison to the heights we have here in Nova Scotia. But uh, it was uphill and it was into the wind and it was a dirt road and there was a lot of sand so it wasn't easy to make it to the top and that's what we're experiencing sometimes in the Christian life but sometimes we see the race marked out for other people and we think well I'd have faith if the race that I had was as easy as theirs and we tend to compare ourselves to 
the races that others are experiencing. And we look at them and they're so much easier. But what the Hebrew writer is doing in giving us all these stories in chapter 11 is he's saying, look, here are the people who were sawed in two. Here are the people who ended up living in caves in the ground. Here are the people that just, the list goes on and on of all the things that they had done. But he said, sawed in two probably isn't an accurate description of the race that God has given us to run. So we need to run with endurance. Even when we're hurting or even when we feel agony, we get our inspiration from these witnesses, these ones that have gone before us. In Hebrews 12.4, the Hebrew writer says, you are struggling with sin, but your struggles have not yet caused you to be killed. Now, I grew up on a family farm where my grandparents lived with us. That was the nature of farms. You might even have four generations living there in the same farmhouse. And my grandmother was an awesome woman. She was also slightly crazy, but she was amazing. And I'd be playing outside and get hurt, and I'd come in crying, Nanny, I think I broke my arm. And she'd look, is there any blood? And I said, no. Well, you're fine. You're a tough boy. You're not bleeding. Get back out there. And it instilled a toughness in me. I, later on, playing hockey, I would get hit with a stick, a couple of teeth knocked out play the rest of the game, and then go to the, the hospital afterwards. I, my eyebrows split open. Just tape it up a little bit, and I'll finish the game. But it, it's almost like the Hebrew writer is saying to us, look, you're not even bleeding yet. Go back outside and play, and come back to me when you start bleeding. And, and I, I, he says, I know it's hard. I know you're experiencing agony in this race that you're running, but the truth is, there are others who've run very challenging races and they've finished. And if they've finished, you can finish. Now get back on that track and run. So sometimes our faith needs a little perspective. And one of the reasons why so many people step off the track is because they actually don't realize that faith is a fight and sometimes it involves bleeding. I found this article, it was in Christianity Today, and it was called, as you can see, The Leavers. And it talks about the number of people leaving the faith. Then they had this other category called the nuns. Now this group, they have no faith. And a lot of people in that category, we've discerned, actually they said, the number of people has actually doubled in the last few decades. And then 73% of the people in that category said that they actually came from religious homes. And then 66% of that group called themselves, this word that I'd never heard before, deconverts. So, and they said, in other words, they were converted to Christianity at some point in their lives, and then they have now deconverted. So according to Rainer Research, approximately 70% of our youth drop out of church between the ages of 18 and 22. And then they said 80% of those raised in the church will be disengaged from faith by the time they are 29. So a lot have missed the fact that faith is a fight. And at times we're going to have to fight for our faith. So the problem is that too many people perceive that God is just there 
to basically make them happy. He's there to reward them if they're good enough. And then when reality hits, it's no surprise that they step off the track. So the Hebrew writer gives this warning. He said, yes, it's going to be agonizing at times. It's going to be hard, but keep on running. I know it hurts. I know you're tired. But remember those who've gone before you. Remember their example and let them inspire you. And my prayer is that there won't be any empty seats here next year. And then I just want to close with one last directive back in verse 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. The New International Translation says, fix our eyes on Jesus. And there are other things that come into our line of sight. But the author is saying, you just fix your eyes on Jesus. You train your vision on Jesus. He's the one who designed and perfected our faith. He's the one who endured the cross. He's the one who went through so much pain and suffering. If we fix our eyes on him, then we will finish that race strong. Joe Lee was a guy who ran a 150-mile ultramarathon across the Sahara Desert. Now that, for those of you that only know the metric system, that's 330 kilometers. And his wife, Allison, had died of cancer about a year and a half prior to this. So he was running this race in her memory and to raise money for the Cancer Society. So that after the first day, he said a number of the runners just had to be airlifted out of there because of their physical condition. And then he said when he got to the 80-mile mark, he blew the bottoms out of his sneakers in the heat. And then that's not good if you're running in the desert. So his feet became totally blistered, and every step was incredibly painful. And when he finished the race four days later, he was asked how he was able to endure such pain and exhaustion. And he said, I thought about Allison a lot. And, and this was nothing compared to what she went through. And that's what kept him going. Maybe this is where you're at. And every step hurts. You've got these doubts and you're struggling with these sins. Or, or maybe you've got this pressure of life that's just weighing you down. Would you think about Jesus a lot? Think about what he endured, because that will give you the strength. The second half of that 12th uh, chapter, verse 2, says, Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Now, I've read this passage many times over the years and never paid much attention to the word joy. I always thought it meant, well, he was looking forward to heaven. That was going to be his joy. But Jesus already had heaven. That, that's not what he was talking about. Because he said, the Father and I are one. So what was the joy set before him? And 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So it's for your sakes. The joy set before him was you and me. 
We are the joy that enabled him to endure all of that pain and suffering on the cross. It was with a future anticipation. So when he was on that cross, he was looking at you. He had a picture of you in his mind, and that's who he was dying for. He showed his love on the cross, and we're now called to put our faith in him. And that's how we're saved. It's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And faith, biblically, is to be demonstrated. So if you want to talk to someone about faith, what that would mean for you, or maybe you want to take that to the point of being baptized into him, please come talk to me or to our associate pastor, James, or one of our leadership.